Today at Reader's Corner, S. Kirk Walsh, author of the novel The Elephant of Belfast. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, author S. Kirk Walsh joins us to talk about her debut novel, The Elephant of Belfast. Inspired by true events, she tells the moving story of a young woman zookeeper and the elephant she's compelled to protect through the German Blitz of Belfast during World War II. The novel speaks not only to the tragedy of the times and the ongoing sectarian tensions that still exist in Northern Ireland today, but also how we cope with grief and loss and come out intact. As Kirk Walsh's work has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and elsewhere, her debut novel, the Elephant of Belfast became a national bestseller. Kirk Walsh, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you for having me on the show, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, I suppose we should start. You have an incredible background, by the way, in terms of your writing career and your life. And so it should come as no shock to anyone that you would produce a book as interesting, as well-written, uh, as suspenseful in some ways as the elephant of Belfast. And I hope to get to a couple of the questions about some of the other things you've, you've done in helping young writers uh, get on their journey. But let's start with the basic. How, how did you happen to learn about the elephant of Belfast? I, I must say I never knew this story existed until I saw your book in a bookstore. Yeah, I get this question a lot. And I, I heard the story about Denise Austin on the radio in 2009. And up to that point, her identity had been a mystery. And the Belfast Zoo did a publicity campaign to figure out, they called her the Elephant Angel. Mm-hmm. And quickly, her younger cousin, David Ramsey, um, called up and identified her. And so that kind of discovery made it to the airways to shows on many public radio stations. And I was probably among many novelists who heard the antidote of a young female zookeeper taking care of an elephant during the bombing. Mm-hmm. We thought, oh, this would make a good novel. And like a lot of readers, I had not heard the Belfast Blitz. I did not know that they had been bombed during the war. And I just think it is a lesser known chapter that has been kind of eclipsed, um, you know, for good reason with all the bombings that happened in London and the UK. And as a novelist, we try to look for those gaps that readers might not know that much about or have not been told that much through the history books. And I kind of quickly realized that this was presenting a gap that could transform into a novel. And I think for me, I was really obviously kind of engaged by the story itself, but I I do come from an Irish American family with um, several people deeply identified by their Irish Catholic roots, more in Ireland And I always thought I would write a novel set in Ireland. And, you know, this story took me up to Northern Ireland, which is um, obviously has a different history. But, you know, it was a curiosity for me. 
and wanting to learn more about this place and how it related. My family was from Drogheda, which is north of Dublin. Um, so it, yeah, it, I think, presented itself as a journey that I decided to take. Yeah, well, you did an excellent job of taking it. Your your research was extensive, uh, right on down to visiting Belfast a few times, and and at one point, actually talking with survivors of the bombings, didn't you? Yeah, so I was really fortunate to connect with the Northern Ireland War Memorial, and they're the museum for World War II in Belfast, and there was a man there named David Hughes, who has since passed away, but he set up interviews with me, I mean, for me, with Blitz survivors. And that was really a pivotal experience for me in the research process and the creative process, because I definitely had some intrepidation of writing about Belfast as an outsider and as soon as I started, particularly this one interview, I did um, Vance Rogers, who was 17 when the bombs fell. I went to his home and he started describing what it was like and the aftermath of riding his bike up the street, which I kind of borrow um, mm-hmm. in my some of my scenes. But it really reminded me of what it was like in Manhattan around the days of September 11th. And Mm -hmm. that kind of gave me an entry point for my imagination because I was like, oh, I have some access to what this might have been like. Mm -hmm. And I think of this as kind of my 9-11 novel, um, using the experiences I had when I lived in Manhattan to kind of bring it to the Belfast Blitz. Yeah, and I I think that that Blitz, I mean, it it went on for days, but... At one point, there was five hours of continuous bombing. Uh, at least a thousand people were killed. Is that is that correct? There were um, three nights of bombings: uh, two in April and one in May. And in my novel, I decided just to include the two April bombings. And mm-hmm. the uh, night you're talking about is Easter Tuesday. Yeah. And um, you know, they just weren't prepared. Um, like a lot of people, they didn't think the Germans would come so far north and with Ireland being neutral and, you know, they just thought, oh, they're not aware of what we're doing up here. But they were producing a lot of munitions for the British. And once the Germans occupied France, they had kind of the strategic pathway to fly up. So so tell us about Hetty. She is the uh, protagonist of your novel. Uh, that's Denise Austin in in real life. Uh, she manages to get herself assigned to the care of Violet. She becomes the first woman zookeeper. Is that right? Does she become the first woman zookeeper? Yes. Yeah. Um, in real life, Denise Austin also became the first female zookeeper. And I think yeah. for me, like that was another draw to the story. You know, a young woman in the early 1940s in Northern Ireland or anywhere, you know, the war was producing more opportunities um, because of conscription and men signing up for the war. But, you know, she didn't have a lot of options. Um, And I think I was interested in kind of that challenge and how a crisis and taking having this focus of caring for the elephant to transform who she was 
which does happen by the end of the novel. Right. And we're not going to give away anything about the end of the novel. <laughs> this is this is a program yeah. that never gives away the, the surprises. And I spent the last hundred pages of your novel uh, on the edge of my seat and with tears of joy among others uh, coming out uh, it was it's it's quite an ending i mean it's you did such a fantastic job but why don't you tell us a little bit about about hetty's family because that that so much plays into the lesson i think i took away from this novel which i mentioned in the intro how do you learn to cope with grief how do you come out of that intact and in hetty's case her family situation was difficult, let's put it that way. But I'll let you fill us in because that really doesn't give anything away. Yeah, so it, as she said, I mean, kind of when the reader meets Huddy, they learn a lot of things, which I think it's okay to yeah. mention since it's the beginning, but she has lost her older sister um, during childbirth and her father has abandoned the family. And so kind of when I write a novel, I often kind of, when I begin, I think of an audience of one, sort of who I'm writing the story for. And with this book, I was writing for my grandmother um, and mostly trying exactly what you said, like trying to understand grief that she had experienced in her life. Um, She was born in 1902. She actually died a month after September 11th. So she died six months shy of her 100th birthday. But my great uncle, his name was Bernard Kirk, and he was a celebrated football player for the University of Michigan. And when he was 21 at the peak of his football career, he died in a car accident. And my grandmother was just, you know, they're Catholic twins. I think she was just, a year younger than him. And I really wanted to try to understand what that might have been like for her to lose this kind of um, the center of her world in a way, the center of the family. And how does one move through that grief? And how does it change? And, And obviously, in my own life, I've encountered grief in different ways, but I think my initial impulse was kind of exploring my grandmother's, um, you know, the book did take me a while to write and, you know, unfortunately life brought me some losses. So in a way, by the time the book was published, it was teaching me um, in unexpected ways, but it was really, um, yeah, seeing how the relationship with Violet, the elephant and being a part of the zoo could change her relationship to her sister and her memory. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is S. Kirk Walsh, author of the novel The Elephant of Belfast. And Hetty's father wasn't exactly uh, <laughs> uh, Ozzie and Harriet style parenting, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, he um, leaves the mother and the family. And, you know, It's funny, like, I tried to, I mean, he's not that present in the book, but when he does appear, I tried to present him as kind of a fully dimensional, complex character who was also loving. And even though, yeah, he doesn't make the best decisions, 
as I was writing drafts of the novel, kind of his trajectory kept changing. Um, so I didn't really know what was going to happen for a while for many of the characters. And um, yeah, it was just interesting to kind of see where Hetty and, and how, you know, she's relating right. to both her parents <laughs> differently. It's so fascinating for me to talk to authors on a regular basis and sometimes ask the question you've just answered, which is, did you know how this thing was going to turn out or didn't you? And some authors will say, oh, I, I, I had an outline. I mean, I knew exactly what was going to happen down to the bitter end. In fact, I knew the ending more than I knew the beginning. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. then, and then there's authors like you who say, the, the characters took me there. And, and that seems to me the most exciting thing about writing a novel, as far as I can tell. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about an aspect of your novel that, for me, was a famous first for Reader's Corner. Never have I read a book that I would then find on a website called Large Hearted Boy, which is a website okay. of music and literature, and what it does is highlight the music novelist insert into their novel. In your particular case, there was a place called Floral Hall, and I'll let you tell the story of Floral Hall, but it's a dance hall. And Mm -hmm. uh, you have during the time in your novel when the dance hall is center to to the discussion, in in the novel you talk about the songs that this band is playing and this singer Stella Holiday is playing. And I thought it was so fascinating that I would find your interview as to how this all came about. And uh, why don't you, first of all, tell us about the historical connection as far as what Stella Holiday does on one particular night. And then if you could also uh, perhaps uh, tell us the story of how this little light of mine found its way into your novel as a result of a Belfast visit when somebody that we all know very well happened to be playing in Belfast that night. Well, so um, the Floral Hall does still exist um, on the grounds of the Belfast Zoo, um, which was formerly called the Bellevue Zoo, which that's what it's named in the book. Um, The building is now dilapidated and closed, but I actually, John Hughes, who introduced me to the Blitz survivors when I met him, he talked about going to dance there with his wife and he was somewhat austere. And it was like one of the few times his eyes kind of lit up uh, was when he talked about dancing at the floral hall. And I wasn't able to go inside the hall when I went to Belfast, but I knew it was going to be one of the set pieces in the book, kind of looking at the before and after or during the bombings. And so the, anecdote that you're referring to, um, there was an Irish singer named Delia Murphy, who uh, during the bombings of April 15th, she sang through the bombings. It wasn't at Floral Hall. She actually sang at the Ulster Hall, which is Mm -hmm. the opera house downtown. But she was an Irish Catholic singer, and it became legend. And you know, as a novelist, you come across these different stories and you're like, oh, I got to use that. Um, <laughs> but you're not sure if it's going to end up working. And so 
in order for Hetty to experience her singing, I had to move her up to where Hetty was. And there is a historian in Belfast, his name is Brian Barton. And, you know, with kind of historical accuracy, it's like you need to have the big facts right. But as a novelist, you can take some liberties right. um, to have a little bit more elasticity so you can tell the story yeah. um, as fiction. And so that was one of the liberties I took. And it, yeah, it is one of my favorite scenes yeah. is when Stella Halliday's singing. And yeah, so music actually, I did see it as a kind of device or way to bring levity into the book because I knew there was going to be a lot of loss and devastation. And I kept trying to think about how music could live in the scenes. And this little light of mine, um, what you're referring to, I mean, so <laughs> there's a, a scene later in the book with, and I won't give too much away, but the orphans in the convent sing that song. And, um, I wanted to put that song in because my husband and I were staying at a bed and breakfast um, on the Lisburn Road, <laughs> which is right down from King's Hall. And we didn't, and I kind of was looking for a bed and breakfast that was similar architecturally to where Hetty and her mom lived up on the Whitewell Road. And, you know, I just found this place. I had no idea that Bruce Springsteen was playing there um, <laughs> at the King's hall for three days so everyone else in the bed and breakfast <laughs> was going to see bruce and they were like people who have seen bruce hundreds of times sure and so we were kind of introduced to another kind of religion in a way <laughs> staying there and we didn't have tickets but we went up to the concert venue and it's not like a huge venue and it's open air and there was this field and, you know, people are walking down the road to go to the concert, but my husband and I just sat in that field and listened to the concert. And the very first song he sang was This Little Light of Mine. <laughs> and then he proceeded to play Nebraska, the whole album. And I think for me, you know, that trip to Belfast, it was very magical. And as a novelist, I felt like I was being given gifts from the different people I interviewed and, you know, listening to that song, just, it felt like a sign um, to just, I was being given something that I needed to honor the best I could. Yeah. Well, if any of our listeners are interested in what songs those were and would like to even listen to them, I learned that it's a playlist on Spotify where you can mm -hmm. download and listen to the songs that are mentioned in your novel, The Elephant of Belfast. That, uh, that to me, again, like I said, that's a famous first. I've not been able to find anything like that. You know, you know Kirk, I even wondered, uh, somewhere into the future, given the advance of digital technology, when will we sit down to read a novel and somehow through some some combination of technological resources and authorial talent like yours, will we be able to listen to the music as well as read the printed page? Um, I, I may be uh, way off base there, but who knows? Uh, but you mentioned <laughs> Brian Barton. I do also want to mention uh, his name again because 
I believe uh, that is the authoritative account of the Belfast Blitz. I think that might even be the name of the book that was out in 2016 or something like that. So if anybody wants to know more about this in terms of where and how you got your information, that would be one way of doing it. Let's talk about another character in your in your book. And by the way, I'll remind our listeners that I'm talking to S. Kirk Walsh, and she is the author of The Elephant of Belfast. Um, Hetty, your protagonist, uh, her boss is is Mr. Wright, the Belfast Zoo director. And I, I thought he was such an interesting character because at the outset of the novel, he's kind of a stern, bossy type. But by the end of the novel, he is different. As a matter of fact, at the very end of the novel, the narrator discusses uh, why he, he, he leaves the zoo. And I don't know whether I want to get into that because that's too much a part of of the outcome of the novel. But I wonder if you could help us with creating this character of her boss who turns over a new leaf, you might say. I don't know how to put it, but he did seem to change a little bit as you read your way through the novel. And that must have something to do with the way you write and rewrite and rewrite. I think you you said in an interview once that uh, E.L. Doctorow, who you studied under, uh, when you went in to show him your novel, he said, keep writing, <laughs> keep writing. Uh, and obviously you did that. But uh, give us a thought on that. Yeah, so um, Mr. Wright, so he's inspired by a man named Dick Foster. And some of the details related to his trajectory are borrowed. From, I mean, kind of his, what happens to him is true to life. Um yeah, he was my favorite character. I, you know, yeah. I'm not quite sure why. Um, I did name him after my grandmother. Her last name was Wright. And I did have a very close friend when I lived in New York City. His name was John McNeil. And he fought many campaigns during World War II. He was actually one of the few people I knew who fought in World War II. And I think part of Mr. Reich's character was informed by kind of the spirit and the soul of John and all that he endured while he um, was fighting. And I think, yeah, as a novelist, um, you know, when I'm creating any character, my hope is to make them complex, to have them be full of contradictions and Usually I'm not sure what that means at the beginning. You know, I have a kind of list of things I think the character is going to be and maybe become. But maybe because I did have this pretty distinctive arc for him within his true story, it gave me something to work with. Whereas with Hetty, I didn't quite know as much about her, to be honest. Um, I was making up more about her story, Um, but Mr. Wright, yeah, I think I knew he was gonna be like a father-like figure to her because of the absence of her father. And that also kind of gave me some indications of where the relationship might go. Very well put, because that's exactly the way I came away from the book, uh, thinking about about him as the father, the substitute father that she didn't, she no longer, had and who wasn't uh, really coming back. Uh, there's a, a conversation between the one of the owners of the zoo, Josephine, 
and heady. It's at the very end of your novel, but it, it, it's not giving anything away for me to give the quote and then allow you to comment on it. Um, they're talking about what happened and and it's over now and the, the bombing's passed us and, and the zoo's going to open up again and they're going to try to get back to normal. But some things have changed that I'll let the readers find out. Uh, but at one point, Josephine tells Hetty, I guess you saved each other, mm-hmm. referring to obviously uh, the the elephant, Violet, uh, the name of the elephant in the book, uh, and and Hetty herself. And I thought that was such a tender moment because when you get to that part of your book, that's exactly what happened. I wonder if any thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think kind of what I kept coming back to or kind of the rudder of the narrative was a relationship between a young woman and an elephant. And it is kind of a love story, you could yeah. say. Um, I did watch actually recently uh, Black Stallion, the movie, and, you know, just how animals can save us quite yeah. literally. And I think during the pandemic, <laughs> I probably wasn't the only one who felt some comfort from We Have Two Cats. But um, how animals can kind of offer solace, but also this ritual of their needs, you know, having to take care of them. And at the end, Violet really is the center of Hetty's life. And it's interesting kind of what you said about not knowing the ending. Like, I did always know the beginning was going to open on the Antrim Road. And I knew I wanted it to end there. Like it was kind of going to be this visual bookend. I just didn't know what was going to happen, you know, particularly in the last third of the book. And But having that kind of compass yeah. um, to know that visually that's where I wanted to land did help. But also it's interesting, uh, David Ramsey, who is Denise Austin's last living cousin, he actually had memories of riding the elephant when he was a young boy oh, and wow. on the street. And he would describe, or to me during the interview, he described the locomotion, you know, what mm-hmm. it felt like to be riding an elephant. And as soon as he described that to me, I was like, you know, I knew I wanted that somehow to inform sure. some scenes. And it does at the end. And um, yeah, I think that, when we're going through traumatic times, it's not like always entirely clear what's saving us. Um, But then in retrospect, it does become very clear. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the elephant, uh, Violet is the name of the elephant in the book, as I said. Um, You actually visited the Houston Zoo. And in your acknowledgments, you give credit to the two people there at the zoo that let you come in, and I assume you had some privileges that ordinary zoo visitors don't have. Um, what did you come away with there that, that helped you write the the story of Violet? Uh, what did you learn that you don't learn if you just look at them from behind the uh, the fences that are installed to keep you from them? Yeah, so I went to the Houston Zoo um, in 2013, so at the very beginning of the process of writing the book. And I don't know if they would allow this now because I think the rules and regulations have changed, but there were actually 
two three-year-old elephants at the zoo when I went to go visit, which is the same age of the elephant in the story. Um, at the Houston Zoo, one elephant was named Tupelo and the other one was named Baylor. And Tupelo was kind of a docile, friendly elephant. And so they let me wash the elephant, like stand right next to the <laughs> oh, elephant wow. and wash the elephant while the two trainers were right next to her on the other side. But it really was invaluable, the details and the sensory experience of feeling like the wiry springs on, uh, of hair on her back and just her height and relationship to me, I'm like five seven. Also feeling the skin, like it just was uh, so helpful. And then being able, you know, they did show me, you know, just the agility of the trunk, um, how it can, you know, pick up a strawberry or a coin. They did have one of the elephants play a harmonica with their trunk, which <laughs> I brought into the book. And then. Um, yeah, Tupelo's mom's name is Tess, and she was actually pregnant when I was there, and they had to do a sonogram. And because an elephant's skin is so thick, they have to go inside the elephant, which I'll just yeah, spare the details, but it required like four or five zookeepers where they have to clean the elephant out, and they were all dressed in like plastic smocks and gloves because oh, of, wow. yeah. you know, <laughs> excrement coming out and yeah. um but they treated the animal with such respect and dignity and care and even though like sonograms didn't exist in 1940 1941 just that kind of scene really helped me to understand the relationship between an elephant and its zookeeper and i yeah, just was able to draw a lot from that. But just watching the feeding and kind of the relationships between the zookeepers, it was very helpful in helping me understand it because it is the primary relationship of the book. It was probably the hardest relationship to write because I had never written an animal-human relationship yeah. before. It just took a lot of time. And I will say, like in the true story, the elephant's name is Sheila, and actually the S in S. Kirk Walsh stands for Sheila. So I had a little bit of a connection to the story from with my name initially as sure as well. I'll be darned. That's that's very interesting. So I've run out of time, but I want to ask you one last question, and I hope it's yes. But I would understand if it's not. Are you working on another book, another novel that we might read someday, maybe even with an animal in it? <laughs> I am writing another novel. I'm originally from Detroit, and I am writing a book set in Detroit during World War II. Oh, cool. Um, it does not feature an animal character, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but it is another kind of gap in the history book, and I felt drawn to telling it kind of a counter-narrative um, to the city of Detroit, and I do have seen um, the oldest aquarium in the country is on Belle Isle, and Belle Isle figures pretty largely into the book. So there, it's kind of zoo adjacent. Great, great. We look forward to that novel when it 
comes out again. I'm talking with S. Kirk Walsh, and this time we're talking about the elephant of Belfast. The next time, I sure hope there is one, we'll be talking about uh, World War II Detroit. Kirk, I want to thank you so much for writing the book, for being with us today, and giving us so many insights into how this all came about. Uh, It's a real joy to read it and a real joy to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Fredrici. With production by Joel Wayne, I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.